We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to everyone. And we're going to start with an overview and discussion of the city plan documents related to growth management. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mayor Council. Ann Russett, she, her, uh, with Neighborhood and Development Services. Um, I have a brief presentation for you all tonight. Um, I'd like to go over the comprehensive plan, how the comprehensive plan is implemented, discuss the land development process at a high level, go over some recent zoning code and policy changes that have been made to implement the comprehensive plan, and then some potential changes moving forward at, at the end, council ha will have an opportunity to discuss. So starting with the comprehensive plan, the comprehensive plan is the guiding policy document for growth and development in the city of Iowa City. It includes a vision, goals, and strategies. It covers many different policy areas, including housing, transportation, land use, economic development. It includes specific conditions and criteria that need to be reviewed for proposed annexations. And it also includes a future land use map. And this is the future land use map here. It identifies the general intended land uses for land within the city. These land use categories are often separated by single family um, and multifamily from commercial and industrial. The future land use map also identifies a growth boundary, which is shown here with the, if you can see it, you can't see my cursor, but it's a, the blue dashed line at the edge of this map. Um, it does include areas which are outside of the corporate limits of the city but will likely be annexed and become part of the city in the future. And the growth boundary is one tool that we have for managing growth. It identifies, again, areas that could be incorporated into the city. The other tool that we have for growth management are policies that encourage growth and higher intensity land uses in the core of the city, and this is especially true in our Riverfront Crossings District. The comprehensive plan was adopted in 2013. It was an update to the 1997 comprehensive plan. And when that update occurred, many community values were the same, but, there were, but it was updated to address new challenges, such as the climate crisis, the 2008 flood, as well as the Great Recession. And as is the case with any comprehensive planning process, it requires a robust and inclusive community engagement process. Besides the 2013 comprehensive plan, there are other components. Um, there are eight district plans, the historic preservation plan, and the fringe area agreement that we have with Johnson County. Here's a map of the city's planning districts. The city created the planning districts with the adoption of the 1997 comprehensive plan, which broke the city up into 10 planning districts. The idea was that after the adoption of the comprehensive plan, the city would embark on more specific and more detailed district plans. And since that time, the city has adopted eight district plans. The first one was completed for the South District in 1996, and that district plan was recently updated in 2015. So that at the time, the South District plan was the oldest district plan, and it was facing growth pressures with the extension of McAllister Boulevard and the new Alexander Elementary School. So those issues were addressed in the 2015 update to the South District Plan. Each district plan also includes a future land use map, which outlines the general intended land uses for the districts. They also sometimes show a conceptual street network. And these plans are visions and conceptual in nature. Uh, the street networks are not engineered designs. 
Here's the future land use map for the North District. So the 80 is at the top of the screen. And if you remember, this comprehensive plan, this district plan was amended for the Forest View project a few years ago. Um, and this is the updated future land use map for that project. You can see the large area in red was envisioned to be commercial. And due to COVID-19 and other changing market conditions, the commercial originally planned for this area, which included hotels, may not end up working out. There have also been amendments to the text of the comprehensive plan to reflect ongoing policy issues. A recent one was related to affordable housing. And in 2018, the plan was amended to require affordable housing at the time of annexation. The image that you see at the right is the final plat for the Community View Part 1 um, subdivision. That was an annexation near Scott Boulevard and American Legion Road, and this was the first development project that um, had to abide by the affordable housing annexation policy. And just to refresh your memories, that policy requires that annexation of residential land has to include affordable units, either through on-site development of those units or a fee in lieu. The affordable units have to equal 10% of the total units of the project, and the affordability term is for 20 years. The, the other component that I wanted to talk about relate, that's a component of the comprehensive plan is the city-county fringe area agreement. This guides development within the city's fringe area, and this is land outside of the corporate limits up, of the city up to two miles. And like the future land use map of the comprehensive plan, it identifies a growth area or growth boundary for future annexation, and also includes policies that guide our review of rezonings and subdivisions. This is the fringe area map. You can see the growth boundary or the growth areas identified, growth areas that are in the growth boundary and then the outside growth areas. In summary, the comprehensive plan sets the community's vision for growth and development. It is a policy document that is visionary, it's not regulatory, and it is constantly updated to deal with changing issues and needs. The city has tools that help to implement the vision of the comprehensive plan, and these include the zoning code, the zoning map, and the subdivision code. The zoning code regulates land uses. There's, it requires additional standards related to height, setback, open space. The zoning map applies specific zones to property within the city, and rezonings are where changes to that map are made. And then the subdivision code regulates the division into lots division of land into lots for development. And zoning actually predates comprehensive planning in Iowa City and in most of the United States. Um, the zoning ordinance here wasn't adopted until, was adopted in 1925, but our first comprehensive plan wasn't adopted until 1961. Next, I'd like to go through the land development process. And here's an example of a typical next steps slide that Danielle would present to you with a rezoning or subdivision application. So this slide might include, you know, the next step being a comprehensive plan amendment, then a rezoning, then the platting or the subdivision of the land. There's typically a preliminary plat and then a final plat. And then after that, it's administrative reviews by staff um, for the site plan and building permits. This uh, slide here shows the, the land development process, again, at a very high level, from annexation, bringing land into the city, 
rezoning, changing the land use designation or the zoning designation of a property, and then subdividing that land through the preliminary platting process and then the final platting process. I just wanted to take a project from start to finish, um, a more recent project that went through all of these steps recently. If you remember, some of you might have been here in 2017 when there was about eight and a half acres of land that was annexed uh, on Rochester Avenue east of Scott Boulevard. Um, this was annexed and then rezoned to an interim development do zoning designation in 2017. And then in 2018, they came back for another rezoning. So they rezoned a portion of that land to multifamily residential and a portion to single-family residential. After the rezoning, they came back with a preliminary plat application that showed the proposed lots and outlots, uh, uh, the ex uh, extension of a road or the creation of a new ro road called Next Avenue. And then they went through the final platting process, which is uh, which records these lots and is an official record of these lots. After 2019, um, they came in with site, a site plan and building plans that re were reviewed by staff. And in 2020, the construction was completed. And you may have seen this project. Um, it's a three-story, 36-unit affordable housing project. There's parking in the back and a children's play area on site. And again, it's just adjacent to Old Town Village. So you can see from beginning to end, it's a several-year process. Moving on from the land development process, I wanted to outline some changes that have been made to city codes and policies um, in order to help achieve the vision of the comprehensive plan. Starting back in 2005, when the city went, underwent an entire zoning code rewrite, and some of the changes that came out of that code rewrite were um, allowing duplexes only on corner lots in single-family zones, allowing accessory dwelling units or granny flats or accessory apartments, and also um, multifamily site development standards were incorporated into that code. In 2007, the city adopted a complete streets policy. The vision of this policy is to ensure that all users of the transportation system can safely and conveniently get around the city. This includes motorists, pedestrians, children, persons with disabilities, bicyclists, freight, uh, transit riders, etc. To help implement the vision of the complete streets policy, the city made some amendments to the subdivision code in 2008. This included only allowing cul-de-sacs where it could be demonstrated that a through street could not be provided and encouraging shorter block lengths. In 2013, the Downtown and Riverfront Crossings Master Plan was adopted. Shortly thereafter, the form-based code for Riverfront Crossings was adopted. And again, this, this code is part of the city's growth management strategy, which incentivizes redevelopment through increased development potential in areas that are close to jobs, close to transit, transit which helps to address some of the city's climate concerns. Since the Riverfront Crossings Code was adopted in 2015, there have been several amendments. The Orchard District was created, and that's a new zoning designation for an area near Benton and Riverside on the west side of the river. The Eastside Mixed Use District was created, which resulted in the development of the apartments on Van Buren and College. 
The affordable housing requirement was incorporated after the code was originally adopted. And there was also a code amendment that allowed some properties that are outside of riverfront crossings that are zoned CB5 to be subject to the riverfront crossing standards. And here's just a couple examples of those projects that were completed because of those code amendments. This is the Whistler Apartments on Iowa Avenue, which is in a CB5 zone, but was subject to the riverfront crossing standards, and then the apartments on Van Buren and College, which was in the east side mixed-use district. In 2020, staff proposed two code amendments. One was the commercial reuse ordinance, which was aimed at addressing barriers for small-scale commercial areas. And this amendment provided flexibility for underutilized commercial parcels. And the amendment allowed Press Coffee at 1120 North Dodge Street to completely transform an underutilized site that sat vacant for many years. So this is on the left a before and after picture of Press Coffee. Moving on from recent code changes, I'd like to touch on some ongoing issues and how land use and zoning can help be part of the solution. Many of our goals have not changed over the years. Goals related to addressing climate change, creating an equitable and just city, and ensuring housing for all remain top priorities. But how we work toward those goals may change over time. In terms of equity, zoning has historically been used to segregate communities. Single family zoning and large minimum lot sizes have resulted in exclusion. Currently, 81% of the land in Iowa City, Iowa City zone for residential is zoned single family. In terms of climate action, the city has goals to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and we want to reduce auto dependence by creating more walkable and compact neighborhoods. I wanted to share some maps that speak to the issues with equity and the history of exclusionary practices in, in land use and zoning. Uh, many of you might be familiar with the mapping segregation project in Iowa, and this map here shows a map of persons of color, households with persons of color in Iowa City. This is from 1921. And then this is the map from 1947. The yellow areas here are land that had restrictive, restrictive covenants in place that excluded people of color. So you can see a portion of this is in University Heights, um, the area to the east of the river there is the Longfellow area on Summit Street. This map is a recent map that was created by researchers at the University of Virginia using 2010 census data. It's a racial dot map, so one dot equals one person. And the map is of the entire country, but this shows just Iowa City. You can see the, the blue is white people, and you can see that most of our community is made up of um, white people, um, but there are areas that have, um, the red areas are, are Asian residents, the green areas are black residents, and then the orange areas are Latino residents, and you can see that these are concentrated in certain areas of the community. So what are we doing now, and what can we do moving forward? Currently, our, the current projects that we're working on is we're updating the fringe area agreement with the county and working closely with the county, Johnson County planners. We're working on the South District form-based code, which I'll touch on more on the next slide. 
We're working to update the Southwest District Plan because there is a sewer extension that's planned for that area that will lead to growth and we hope to apply form-based standards to that area of the city. And in terms of future planning efforts, we want to focus on areas where urban development is expected based on infrastructure that's planned. And this includes areas around um, Alexander, or sorry, Hoover Elementary School, and also the Herbert Hoover and 80 interchange. In terms of the South District form-based code, we are moving forward a proposal to adopt uh, this code for a 900 area, acre area of undeveloped land in the South District. This code allows a wider variety of housing types to help improve housing choices and create a range of price points. It requires a mix of building types by the block, so you can't, can't build all single family. And it also includes regulatory incentives for affordable housing. One of the goals is to, of the project is to apply it to other greenfield sites, like the Carson Farms area. In order to apply it to other greenfield sites, staff would need to work on updating the comprehensive plan, which we are currently doing for the Southwest District, and apply new land use designations that allow uh, diversity of housing types, including missing middle housing. It also needs to show a highly in interconnected street network and with these new plans in place, the proposed form-based zoning designations could be applied. Staff has also evaluated what other code changes could be done now. In evaluating these changes, we looked at timeframes, staffing capacity, and potential impacts. Three options that we've outlined on the screen are amendments that not, would not take too long to implement. They also might not have the greatest impact. These include re-examining our duplex standards for single-family zones. As I mentioned before, duplexes are only allowed on corner lots in single-family districts. We could look at decreasing minimum lot sizes for single-family zones and examine parking regulations. A project that may have a greater impact but also take a significant amount of time and staff resources would be an overhaul of the comprehensive plan. As part of that process, we would examine existing land use designations and how they help or hinder achieving our goals related to equity and sustainability. A comp plan process would also need to be followed by code amendments. And um, it goes without saying that this would require a robust and inclusive outreach pro pro program. So that concludes my, my presentation. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right, council discussion. I think it's really helpful for people to see a refresher for us, but also for the general public to see kind of that process that we go through in developing from raw land, whether it's in the city or not, to getting to the point of the final plats and uh, some of the things that we've done you know in the past and some of the changes that um, have been made and and have been made in code and that council has approved in terms of trying to improve some of those things so i think it's a good reminder i i've been impressed with the um i'm, I'm really interested in projects that really strongly convey what it is we're trying to accomplish and uh in the presentation was that um, renovation of that commercial property on North Dodge, which had been just sitting there vacant for, I'm not sure how many years it was vacant when I got here. Um, 
And it has really been transformed, and I think part of that has to do with code changes. It also has to do with the developer, who I think is interested in working on distinct projects, um, not run-of-the-mill projects. Uh, but I think it's a great pilot project in the sense it can show what can happen if you line the, you know, the codes up so that it promotes the vision and um, incentivize that, that movement in that direction. <clears throat> um, I think the same thing might apply to you know, some of these opportunities we're looking at you know, the duplex standards, reducing minimum lot size and so forth, uh, off-street parking requirements. I'm concerned where those may, where the opportunities for those types of changes may be. Uh, and I think we need to really be caref careful in understanding what the impacts may be. Um, and again, perhaps pilot the concept, uh, test it on a more limited basis before sort of unleashing the power of it over a large area. Um, it also might help if we do it well, um, incentivize that direction. If it's done well, people then I think understand why it's a valuable change. Um, but it, you know, there's a risk involved with these changes, particularly in certain areas where it may incentivize you know, the, the wrong thing, shall we say. Uh, not the type of changes to the occupancy, the, the demographic um, that we're envisioning. So I think, you know, to sort of pilot, test it on a smaller scale as a strategy moving forward is just something I would suggest. I wanted to remind everyone that we do have our two counselors on the phone, so just chime in as well. This is Janice Weiner. I, I really uh, would like to echo what Councillor Thomas just said. Uh, I, I really appreciate the presentation. I think that the, the, what you referred to with respect to the, the, the duplexes and smaller lot sizes is, is a piece that's left over from the previous affordable housing plan. Uh, and I also am really looking forward to seeing the the South District form based code because I think that is the real game changer because if it's if we do that well and it really represents what the future that we're looking for, it can be a really excellent template for the for growth going forward. And another point I might make would be uh, with regard to the form based code application, you know, developing We've developed it, developed it for the South District, and there's an opportunity where we can then kind of export that and, and apply it in other parts of the city. I, I think another important aspect of using the form-based code, which is, in, a, in my mind, the, the goals of the form-based code are to you know, improve the built environment, but at the same time improve walkability, uh, increased integration of income so that we don't have that segregation that Ann was talking about. And that may that usually, if it's going to be done well, includes the, the road infrastructure. You know, it's not simply the buildings. And I think there, too, the South District, you know, the one road that we've seen implemented was um, 
McAllister, and you know, from what I'm hearing, people are really happy with that road. And that, that in a sense, was part of the vision, you know, making sure that the, uh, the, the speeds on that street are kept at a lower speed than one might expect. Uh, the block sizes that it would generate are all kind of integrated into that street. Uh, so when we consider exporting the building component of the form-based code, I think at the same time we need to look carefully with to um, you know how the road infrastructure, the street infrastructure, is laid out. I guess for myself. Um some of the opportunities that we have that are more short-term that was mentioned, um, re-examining the duplexes, you know, the lot sizes, as you mentioned, um, and the parking rigs, I do think that could lend some more information to council and to the public as to what those could be and how they could impact. I, I, what I do know, and I want to make a point, um, is that at least for me, I understand that the goal of our council is to have this discussion so that we can really zone in on what the community needs are, as well as have something that is tangible um, and, and predictable for everyone in our community. Not only do we have um, developers, but we have staff, council, and most important, our residents. I think it's very important that when you know they go to a document that it does represent um, kind of the steps that council would do. And I know that has not often been the case. And so I do believe that um, the South District form-based code, we're gonna be looking at that in the near future. Super excited to see how that has played itself out. It has to go through uh, PNZ first and then it'll come to us mm, at that point you know how do we duplicate this throughout our community um, should that be uh, the case that we want to you know have this be the um, kind of the, the the lay of the land for most of the city um, I, I do believe that there's there is wisdom in in what uh, Councillor Thomas just mentioned as far as doing uh, a little bit at a time um, than doing it all and then finding out that that doesn't work. Uh, I, although, flip side, we are in a position where we know the community and everyone that I just mentioned is really calling out for more predictability. And so with that, you know, looking at, you know, that the overall comp plan, you know, um, how I'm more interested to find out what would be the timeline that council think um, we could really uh, zone in and really garner what we're looking for um, for the community? And, um, you know, if it's going to be um, kind of led by staff, I, I think we need to have that conversation. Um, there's also, you know, other cities that have city planners that kind of come in and look at the whole community and um, or is it going to be contracted out because this is not a small undertaking when we're talking about the entire city of Iowa City um, we just saw all the you know different zones and um, laid out there 
the annexation um, of, of properties coming into the city. I, I think that we have great opportunity as a city. I, this is a hot spot. Many people want to live in our community. And I think that we um, should look at how can we optimize um, allowing people to come where they want to be, as well as having all of our values incorporated in what we develop. And so uh, one of the hopes that I have before we're done today is if council can have some discussion on what this looks like uh, from a time, um, on some type of a timeline, um, and you know, who are we thinking can do and lead this process? And of course, would welcome city staff to chime in on that as well. You know, if I could um, just jump in real quick, Mayor, the um, plan that we have right now that, that Ann briefly touched on at the end there is certainly to, to take the form-based code for the South District to the finish line. And, and the PNZ has had a couple of meetings um, really dissecting that code, asking questions, and staff is currently following up with them. But I do expect that that will end up uh, at your table here in the next, uh, you know, 30 to 60 days probably. It just depends on uh, when, when Planning and Zoning Commission feels comfortable forwarding that on. That's clearly going to uh, set the stage for growth uh, not only in incorporated uh, but unincorporated areas in the South District. Uh, any, any area that is not developed would um, presumably, um, after, the, after that code's adopted, fall subject to, to that, uh, that, that standard. Um, we're already working on that Southwest District Plan, so that's the Carson area that uh, the Council talked about um, uh, uh, you know, four or five months ago. Um, uh, we know that is going to be a significant area of growth for the city, and, and the uh, urban planning team um, has been working for the last several months to update that comprehensive plan, that district plan, if you will. Uh, so that'll have to be brought through that process as well as well once we finish that up. So those two things are are already in progress. And then uh, what Ann signaled is next for us in terms of those district plan updates is really looking at the east and northeast sides of town. Certainly. Um, taking a uh, look up at that um, eastern corridor along Herbert Hoover Highway where we've already seen uh, the Churchill subdivision go and we know that there's additional development pressure up there. Um, but also, you know, I think it was 2011 that we last updated the, the plan around um, the um, uh, new Hoover Elementary School. And so while we feel pretty good, that's, that's fairly recent in terms of a comp plan update. Um, we'll have to look at how to carry that form-based coding concept um, into that area because that was not contemplated in 2011. So there's quite a bit of that work underway. I think that that direction from council would be helpful is, you know, when it comes to more specific code uh, amendments like the duplex standards, how comfortable are you um, going forward? Is this going to be a small pilot project that you want us to pursue? Um, or do you want us to, to push forward and, and um, do a more comprehensive uh, type of amendment that would expand land uses? And as Councilman Thomas um, mentioned, you, you can't just think of this in terms of what new development looks like because this is going to apply to a, a, uh, a land use classification that includes current developed areas. So um, you can imagine in some of the uh, areas uh, closer into our core, 
um, where there might be some infill projects that neighbors may not like and you know specifically a single family home being torn down for a duplex um, that would be enabled by this and we've all probably had our our share of uh, have our share of memories of those controversial infill projects we just have to be cautious um, while we we have a sense of urgency we also have to uh, be cautious that we're uh, again not going to undo anything that we've been working towards um, in terms of stabilizing some of those um, closer in neighborhoods too yeah I, I certainly would agree with Jeff there that um, and that's that's in a sense I was indirectly earlier speaking about that um, the concern I would have in certain areas where we we have a historic uh, tendency for any new development to in the core neighborhoods to be basically adding uh, supply for the student housing and you know our our comprehensive plan has um, outlined how we you know we we should be addressing that imbalance and uh, it's been a, a really challenging issue um, you know I do think I I think there may be ways we can try to um, integrate our desire for affordable housing with addressing how to better achieve that balance um, we, we haven't talked about economic incentives but I think it may be that uh, you know economic incentives on a small scale may be able to tip the balance um, so I'm, I'm hoping again I, I think we need to try to think through at least in the infill and the core um, uh, think these things through see what kind of strategy we can employ uh, in areas say around Hoover you know I think that idea of in, in allowing um, higher densities may not be as controversial or as problematic um, you know the South District has done that um, I haven't seen the South District plan in a while but my my impression is is it will include uh, a range of densities for the single or for the uh, residential development um, and another thing I wanted to mention I don't know if staff is thinking about revising the subdivision standards but you know I was mentioning road design um, it might be something worth considering we often go into our subdivisions after they're constructed and end up having to implement traffic calming measures so it's that suggests to me that there may be uh, ways we could improve walkability in the subdivision standards so that we we again try to integrate uh, into the design what we want those speeds to be because we certainly have seen you know numerous incidents where we've had to come in and, and um, you know in my mind try to apply a band-aid to address the speeds that we're, we're experiencing so if we can get ahead of that uh, I think that would be to our advantage I think you do mention some of the complexities of this but I did want to make a point um, that while we are you know looking at all of this I do believe that we want to use some wisdom and move forward with caution but I, I do believe that there is still that sense of urgency that we should feel yeah I, I agree and I think it's just a matter of what what the context is mm -hmm. and um, you know where I'm, I'm kind of being reminded of the prairie restoration there were there were a number of projects where it seemed yep let's do it I don't see any any um, 
resistance or friction that it may generate and then in other areas you know we, we did see that um, a little bit more community engagement was necessary so I think that it may be the same thing just trying to assess where um, we can anticipate there's going to be potential impacts where and where we may not have that that issue I appreciate your comment about moving as quick as we can I, I'm, there's the old uh, saying haste makes waste but I still think that uh, we can be cautious yet move forward uh, as quickly as we can because the the South District's been waiting for a long time they've been in need of, of us to really take a good look at them for a long time and I think the sooner we can get to it and get get started on things the better I think with with this discussion I'm wondering about um, what we're moving with urgency towards um, and maybe if we can kind of try and articulate that a little bit better um, because I I think our the timeline that Ann laid out was the most helpful for me to kind of see how we've progressed over decades of kind of addressing different issues and as I think urban planning has changed and the way that we look at you know trying to extrapolate community values into the built environment has changed over time and so what are we you know what are we urgently trying to achieve or fix um, that our current system really doesn't allow for I'm not I'm not sure and I don't know that all of you have answers to that but but I think for myself the going through the district plans and having those updated is makes a lot of sense um, and kind of phasing it that way rather than trying to undertake an entire comp plan review all at one time given the intensity of that and that we know there's a lot of other you know <laughs> normal work that that has to be undertaken throughout that process um, the south district comp plan update or the district plan for the South District and that process, which Anne reminded me was completed in 2015, I think, um, was a really fantastic process. There were a number of community meetings. I mean, I remember attending and, and the planners are there, you know, with different um, little pieces of paper to try and show what different kinds of concepts and layouts could be, you know, and what, what do you imagine for what these different areas would be like. And that plan now is what has really helped emphasize, for example, the green space that we have and the trail system that we have and the magnificence of the parks that we have. Um, and so I think that process seemed really good. And I don't know that that process needs to be changed in my opinion and since I was the one that talked about the urgency I'll just uh, bring a little clarity uh, predictability is probably the number one word that I would use um, and and I did mention you know this is really predictable for residents most importantly but to staff council um, as well as to the developers and and some of that is it's all built all is all built in there in there and so some of the um hype bonuses for instances it would all be inclusive it's mm. it, as well as if you these are the things you can do maybe it's single family maybe it's a little commercial here and there or it, so it would be more comprehensive in laying out what are the opportunities that um can happen at that space and so it's more predictable um, and then I also believe that it's our values um, because, you know, we're a very different community. 
than we were a few years ago. We have our climate action goals that we are trying to aggressively achieve. Uh, we also have affordability needs that we um, have made a commitment to, and I believe that the city of Iowa City is committed to reaching um, you know, more equitable uh, opportunities for people to live throughout the community. And so those are the things when I mentioned urgency um, would be at you know, some of the things at the forefront. Yeah, and it seems to me the form-based code will help a lot with, with that. I think that's a lot of the intention in terms of you have like this menu, right, of things that you know if you can sort of pick and choose from that, it should be allowed. But I, I do also want to challenge us a little bit. In my short experience on council, I see the unpredictability coming from the seven of us more than from our documents or our code. And I don't know how you solve for that. Well, I think some of our, I'll just mention some of our codes don't have all of our current values in them. Okay. Yeah, and I think when we look at, you know, kind of our priorities and, and sense of urgency here, I think, you know, the three that staff mentioned, kind of that they're working on now, I think the form-based code, um, as you just said, Laura, is really important because that's going to inform a lot of green space development that you know will happen as we annex you know land into the city and so i think it's really important that we get that one done for the south district um and as as city manager said you know once we get that done hopefully we're going to be able to kind of be able to pick that up and use it in different places maybe it will need some modification um, in different areas but we'll have a lot of that framework already done that we'll be able to use that will hopefully give us uh, that diversity of housing type price points you know everything that we've talked about there and I think with the next two that they talked about the the southwest district plan and then kind of the east and northeast just make a lot of sense because that's that's where we have the greatest possibility of annexation coming in the near future and so to make sure that that land is really being developed the way we want it to be developed um, so getting on those and then I think you know the challenge is what other updates do we need for for those parts of the city that are already developed um you know as the mentioned as we mentioned you know if there's certain places you don't want somebody just to be able to tear down a house and put in a duplex or a triplex or things like that so how do how do you make those switches but to me the the probably the most urgency is in those areas of the city where we have the opportunity or might be facing requests for annexation um, sooner rather than later uh, i think we I think we saw that with with Carson Farms and why and potentially why the council did not approve that. Um, and frankly, I would like us to revisit that sooner rather than later, um, because I think the other opportunities for that land being developed outside the city are not good, would not be a good result for the city. So I, I think as we look at and then the you know the problem is staff is always busy and I, ideally we would go back through these district plans kind of on a regular time frame um, so that I, when I looked at some of the dates on these I think what one of them was 1999 was the last time it was redone and that's definitely too long I mean things change the other piece of it I think that is challenging Bruce you talked about predictability and um, you know and the Anne used the word when she was talking that a lot of these plans are conceptual they are giving an idea of what it is we want and, and kind of the overarching uh, results out of that. And when you do that, 
there are certain elements that are shown in there that people then believe are hard and fast. This is the way it is supposed to be and don't realize that, no, it, those are ideas and it lays out the kind of the context. I think that's one reason we've seen so much pushback um, on the rezoning we'll talk about later tonight in terms of um, cul-de-sacs versus through streets. And so I think, you know, really understanding what those district plans mean and how they're to be utilized is, is a challenge and is important. One, one thing I might add on the, the, the question of urgency is that, uh, you know, if in looking at trying to take the, the form-based code concept that we're developing or have developed in the South District and applying it elsewhere, um, I, it may be useful uh, as we move forward, say, in, in applying it to Carson Farms, uh, to have uh, kind of an as-needed consultant on board who has that, those skills of, of assisting with the development of what I would, I would really like to call a town plan. You know, the, 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 the work of an architect is to design typically a, a particular building. Uh, developing Carson Farms is developing, uh, if it's successful, uh, a small town. And that's a different skill. And, and so it seems to me that it, it might be useful, again, partly because of these timeline issues, uh, I, I do think if we're going to develop, if we're feeling this urgency to develop, uh, it's critical that you know, the, the values that we've been talking about of inclusion, equity, energy conservation, uh, creating neighborhoods that have that social dimension, um, that we get it right, that it's not just another subdivision, but actually the creation of a, a place that, that one feels some sense of identity with. And, and that may require, at least not necessarily as a permanent member of the team, but the ability to consult with a, a town planner, you know, as the, the need arises. I think that brings up an interesting point that we sort of struggle with when various projects come up, which is the, I mean, we'll just take Carson Farms, that's what we're talking about. It's it's the developer will come forward with a proposal and we can't there's only a certain level we can dictate right like there's a certain degree to which really what we have to do is have our in this case hopefully form-based code or at least you know the path on the way so that everyone can understand predictably you know where it's where it's headed um, but we can't say our town planner is going to tell you what exactly will be built here if we're not the property owner and i and i think we just need to you know sort of acknowledge that or think about you know what that means if if we feel like we're going to be wanting to impose a level of specificity that our regulatory documents might not allow yeah i i i think that's important i i do um think so what's the receptivity of the landholder? Right. And um, I, you know, personally think, uh, you know, Jesse Allen is someone, first of all, we have a fairly consolidated piece of land there, mm -hmm. which I think would be helpful. So we don't need to talk to a dozen property owners. We can talk to one. And um, 
you know, in my experience in this instance, uh, Jesse's interested in new ideas, just like the developer of the Press Cafe. Mm -hmm. um, so so it, I think, I mean, in the end, I think we're trying to improve the development. So I would hope that, and I understand that it's a different approach, so there may be from a, you know, business model with some concern about that. Um, and that's maybe, again, where South, the South District comes in. If we see the South District uh, is successful in the same way that over time the Peninsula District was successful, that the concept begins to promote itself. Um, but yeah, I think there's some opportunities with Carson in part because it's just one major property owner. And I think, you know, in terms of what people hope or intend to do with their property, that's one that we know they want to be in the city. The South District is a number of property owners if we're going to have this form-based code, and we don't know that that means they're going to come in and, you no, know, we don't. I and mean, develop. It, hopefully the proof will be with the, the, those who decide to do it, that, yeah. that it's successful, and um, others will want to join in. I don't know if there's any comments from anyone on the phone. I'd like, this is Janice Weiner. I just sort of, you were asking for priorities, and uh, and what I've essentially heard is, at least what I think I've heard, is something that I would really support, which is looking, finishing this form-based code for the South District, using that as a as a template to the, the, to the degree that we can, um, looking secondarily at some measures that we can take in the already built areas that that will improve chances for affordable housing without um, without creating results that we don't want, sort of by looking at it maybe perhaps as pilot projects or looking at what other communities have done to avoid um, some some of the, to avoid some of the problems we don't want to run into, uh, including the the ideas that Councillor Thomas raised about making sure that the what the streets are a piece of this, and then. Um, I'm not sure if there is, and I didn't hear from Ann and Russ. That is there, if we have a, a normal built-in cadence for how we, for the, for when we, the how often we take a look at or redo some of these district plans, uh, but to the extent that they're plant that, that they are areas where growth is expected to take place or there or change, changes uh, is happening, it might be useful to have some some sort of regularization of that. But I don't necessarily think that um, that looking at a, a complete overhaul of the comprehensive plan is the way to go right now. My one question that's sort of maybe off topic a little bit is just where the where the where we stand with respect to negotiations on the fringe agreement. Uh, Councilmember Weiner, this is this is Ann. I just wanted to answer your question on the fringe area agreement. We actually have a draft, um, a pretty solid draft that we've been working with the county on, and we're hoping to get it adopted by October. Um, that's kind of our goal at this point. Thank you very much. So it does sound like um, the majority of people that have you know, shared so far like the South District form-based code is what would be the next step. Um, and then after, you know, and then I think once we have that discussion, my assumption is 
this topic could be brought up again um, as to next steps a little more in detail. One question, um, and, and we know that that's 30 to 60 days away. One question I wonder, because um, I know Councilor Thomas has talked about, you know, the, like the town, the town planner, is that, is that what you mm -hmm. call it? Um, ultimately, do we, you know, do we have any sense that there might, it, there might be, uh, there, we could have some value from having a, a consultant of any type, and I'll also ask that maybe to our staff to help with this big. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the one common myth with consultants is that it stay, it saves staff time. Bringing on consultants doesn't really save us time. We still um, carry out those projects um, and oftentimes have to spend a lot of time bringing the consultant up to speed on the community here. So um, don't think of a consultant as a time saver. Think of a consultant as a value add to a process. And uh, if we feel like there's a value add, like we did with um, the form-based code, usually we'll come to you um, with that. Um, if it's um, more of a capacity, if you'd like to see the planning districts updated at a greater frequency, I'd like to have that conversation with our staff, but my, my guess is we would come back to you and, and look for um, uh, extra staffing with, with, and hire somebody that, that is trained in long-term planning that can, that can focus on that. And uh, I think you've seen over the last few years, you know, as our staffing uh, in, that, in that part of the division, we have the capacity for, you know, maybe one major, maybe a major um, uh, kind of effort. So whether it's the Riverfront Crossings Code or this form-based code or the South District update, we tend to have one major thing uh, going on at, at the time. And then we have a lot of project-specific um, um, uh, amendments like the forest view example that was brought up that can take a considerable amount of time and then we also do the more surgical code amendments that that Ann referenced so we're juggling a lot of those smaller things all the time and that won't that won't change um, but if you know you'd like to see us moving at a pace where we do more than one of those large either comp plan or code rewrites at a time that's probably a discussion for another day when I can speak with staff and we could come back and let you know where a consultant might provide value and where extra staff within our division might provide value and then you can make a decision on what you think's best. Can you give us um, maybe just a brief synopsis of who was all involved within the South District Form Based Code um, just from a consultant or like an outsider? Yeah, um, and is there anybody outside of Opticos? So. Besides Opticos, there was one group that did the uh, housing market analysis, but otherwise just Opticos. That was a multi-year contract, and um, I don't recall uh, the, the, the price tag, but several hundred thousand dollars to bring on uh, a consultant uh, like that. It's, it's, again, it's not going to save, um, save money or time, usually. It's, it's, you have to really think about it as a value add. And I don't know how, you know, we'll, we'll see the result of how the South District form-based uh, code plays out. Um, but, uh, you know, there could be some benefit to, if there is a need for some outside assistance, um, you know, continuing with Opticos, if that seems like the, 
if it seemed like the relationship was good and it it got us where we needed to be but um, didn't know if there were any other uh, timelines that people wanted to mention right now it sounds like we're going to wait for the south district form based code to come before us we know that that's going to be um, coming from pnz planning and zoning commission within 30 to 60 days any other thoughts for timeline well i guess i, I would would like to briefly mention that you know in in the core neighborhoods uh, you know we have been seeing a few infill projects uh, I don't know if I want to say it's there's pressure for infill development, but you know we've seen several of them, you know, over the last year or so. Um, and I think there is, you know, those of us who um, are concerned with that that issue uh, in the core neighborhoods are a little bit concerned where this will go. Um, are we going to continue to see infill that again will? essentially uh, work toward increasing the imbalance of short-term versus long-term residency uh, and and so that coupled with the fact that you know the the housing in the core neighborhoods like other parts of Iowa City is aging and that I would say that aging process has been accelerated by the fact that it's had decades of long short-term residency uh, that coupled with the fact that there's been such a increase in the supply of student housing raises questions about what what might happen with some of these houses in the core neighborhoods that lose their viability as as places where students choose to live uh, and we just see them unoccupied potentially um, so those are the issues that I, I feel we you know as a city need to to be mindful of and and you know I, I certainly think the neighborhoods are are watching it, um, but you know what's our plan, basically, because what's happening now isn't helping. And so, you know, it, it is something that you know I've, I've talked to Jeff about. Um, you know, we have that property on Ronalds, that could be an example of a pilot project. Um, we need to explore uh, another way of seeing development uh, in the core neighborhoods because the bulk of it over the last 50 years has has been oriented toward the, the short-term residency of students. And it does seem there's both an opportunity and the possibility that it may just be a, you know, student infill 2.0, you know, so, um, I'll just mention that it's you know it's not like there's this uh, vast amount of um, development yield that will be generated by that, um, but it nevertheless is is a concern to um, you know the long-term residents in the core neighborhoods. I think infills are uh, interesting, and I think they could have some opportunities for some of the Minston Middle, mm -hmm. um, but I but what you run into is the established neighbors that are there um, that have a little challenge at envisioning within their neighborhood something different well, sometimes. That, that's why I think the you know staff has suggested the duplex is kind of the limit. Um, you know some cities have been calling for you know allowing up to four or more units in their single-family neighborhoods but we don't we don't have in my view that I mean that might be what you would see in Portland we don't we don't have that kind of 
from what I can see, housing pressure that Portland has. So the duplex does seem to me to be a, a reasonable increment to consider that if we do it well, um, will not be disruptive to the character of the neighborhood. So South District, Foreign Base, Foreign Base Code will wait for. And um, I guess between now and then, are there any thoughts um, or directions that we would have for staff to work on? Are we, or are we just wanting to, um, because there's a few things coming up. Well, I mean, it sounded to me from what Ann said that, I mean, they're already kind of have the, southwest district plan in sight and also the northeast and east district plans that they're starting some work on and that's where i was mentioning that i agreed with those as priorities because those are the areas for the most opportunity for annexation and large-scale greenfill development so getting those figured out and changes made make sense to me mm -hmm. all right on the phone anything else All right. Um, I, I guess I, I know that, um, you know, re-examining re the duplex and the lot sizes and, you know, the parking regs, I think that it may just come out when we discuss the South District Form Based Code on some level. And so um sound like we will pick up this conversation during that time. And unless there's anything else. We will move on to the next item on the agenda, which is council discussion on city use of Johnson County in wrap, and that's IP3. And welcome, Chief Liston. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dustin Liston. I'm the Chief of Police of the Iowa City Police Department. Um, for about the last five months, I've been introducing myself as the new chief, but I figured that started to sound like an excuse, so I'm just the chief now. So. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, memo that I prepared for that should be in your packet and I don't want to read it to you verbatim I'll just go over some of the highlights but um, in 2014 Johnson County Sheriff's Office uh, obtained a mine resistant ambush protected vehicle what we refer to as an MRAP which is an armored vehicle through the uh, law enforcement support office 1033 program and all local law enforcement agencies in the area uh, share that vehicle along with the um, maintenance costs um, the the vehicle has no uh, offensive capabilities and it just it's basically movable ballistic armor it provides protection um, it's used for high-risk situations that are outside of the normal officer or patrol vehicles capabilities and those include active shooters armed barricaded subjects and specifically what it's used for most in Iowa City is the service of high-risk uh, warrants and uh, search warrants um, since 2014 in seven years the Iowa City Police Department has used it seven times two of those seven times it was staged off-site and was never taken to the area where the warrant was being served um, the decision to use the MRAP is not taken lightly um, I've had several conversations with people in the community and understand the impact that the use of that vehicle has so I want you guys to understand I don't take that decision lightly um, but it's based on several factors and that's the seriousness of the alleged crime uh, the sub the suspects previous violent history any weapons involved and any potential for uh, 
civilian rescue or uh, evacuation. Um, it also allows us to use a method that is much safer. Uh, sometimes the situation dictates that, or the circumstances around the situation dictate that we have available cover and we're able to use that cover to use a safer method where we call the people out of the house to avoid going into the house. Obviously, you can imagine going into a home is much more dangerous than calling the people to us. So that's what we try to use cover for. Unfortunately, there are some situations in town, certain addresses that don't provide natural cover. And that's what we use the MRAP for, is to bring that natural cover. Um, without the use of the MRAP or another or an alternative armored vehicle, it would significantly impact our ability to handle some of these high-risk situations. Um, if you like, later I can give you specific examples that I've experienced in my career and other examples around the country. It wasn't several months ago where the state had to use one to rescue an officer who had been shot. Um, I also want to talk about the violent crime that's been occurring in the city and the warrants that we've been serving and the type of crimes that people uh, were serving these warrants have committed. In the last 18 months, we've seen a, a drastic increase in um, shootings. In the year 2019, there were 15 confirmed shootings in Iowa City. And when we say confirmed, that means there's some sort of evidence that makes us know that it happened, not just someone calls in, it could have been fireworks. This is someone has seen someone shooting, we have re we've recovered evidence, whether it be casings or there's damage or someone has been hit. In 2020, that went up to 57. So it's almost four times what we had in 2019. And that, in, in 2020, we had uh, 304 rounds fired that we could confirm, and 11 people were struck, in, in, including two homicides. And to date, in, now I have to update the stats, sadly, because since I wrote the memo, the, the numbers have gone up. In 2021, to date, year to date, we've had 23 shootings with 159 rounds fired. Um, eight people have been shot and hit, and three people have been killed. And from the period July 14th to, to July 24th, a 10-day period, we had eight shootings. So eight shootings in 10 days involving three people hit and 90 rounds fired. And most recently, I'm sure you guys saw the video of the incident at the Ped Mall. So what we're dealing with is violent criminals who show no regard for public safety at all. And we need to take that into consideration when we're investigating these crimes and certainly when we're going to people's houses who we think are involved in these crimes. Um, and lastly, I just want to mention that we have never really looked at an alternative um, for an armored vehicle simply because the frequency in which we use it. Like I said, we use it, we've used it seven times. That's one time a year for us. Um, so we really haven't looked at it, and they are exceedingly expensive. My former agency, we had three of them, but round figures are they're about a quarter million dollars a piece, so that is a significant purchase. But if the council would like us to, we can certainly look into looking at alternatives and those alternatives get away from the militaristic look. They, it is an armored vehicle, so it is that, but it's, design, it's based for, on civilian law enforcement purposes. So it looks a little more similar to a, uh, things that people are used to seeing on the streets now, like 
bank trucks. It's, it's not a bank truck, uh, you know, I want to be completely honest, but it is designed specifically for, for civilian law enforcement. It's not a piece of military equipment. If, if the council wishes, we can certainly look into that. I know the county is have some, having some conversations about looking into alternatives to the MRAP as well. And I can answer any questions that you all have. And, and you said how much the alternative, how much is cost? How much would an alternative cost? It depends on which one. There are yes. several out there. The most popular one is typically a, a one by the name of Linco Bearcat. Those are in the neighborhood of $250,000. So that's a significant cost. Chief, isn't the idea that this would be a shared, uh, this would be a shared expense? Uh, you know, the vehicle would be, there would be a pool of public entities. We could certainly look uh, with engaging our regional partners in, mm -hmm. in that. Uh, I'm not sure what the county's plans are. I've, I've had conversations with the sheriff, I'm not, um, but we could certainly look at engaging in those conversations, absolutely. Because I, I do think, you know, the, as you put it, the civilian, something that reflected more a civilian context, I think, is important. And honestly, the usability is better, too. It, mm -hmm. it was designed for civilian law enforcement. The MRAP was not designed for that. It works for that. It stops bullets, but that, uh, it's, not, it's not as easy to drive. It's, it's very heavy. We can't take it across certain bridges in town because of the weight. Um, and then the, just the mere look of it driving down a city street is, is disturbing. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly recognize that. So in the seven times it's been used by the Iowa City Police Department, there were five actual deployments, is that correct? Correct. And in any of those instances, were, were any shots fired at the MRAP? No, not, not in those situations. And honestly, I think part of that is because the MRAP is there. Uh, th that certainly has an effect, and that's in my previous career, we used armored vehicles quite a bit, and that was in the hopes of ending the situation safely. Perhaps if someone looks out the window and sees that there's an armored vehicle out there, they know that, well, it might be time just to come out. And that's, that's the experience that I've had with them. Certainly, I don't know if there's any more questions for the chief. Thank you. Mike, I have another question. For example, if we choose to buy a new, uh, like, civilian-looking one, what are we going to do with the old one? Well, the old one's not ours. It's the county's. So that would be their decision. Um, I know, but it's not shared? We share in the use. Is but it we, shared? Correct, Mayor Pro Tem. We share in the use, but we don't share in the ownership of it or the decision of what happens to it. Oh, we don't share the ownership. Uh, I don't know. My mistake. I thought we shared the ownership, too. No. Gee, um, Chief, assuming that there would be a regional solution because this came from a, a federal government program, do you know what the, the, the process would be for the county to, to um, uh, get rid of the MRAP? In my experience, uh, it's given back into that program and then they repurpose it for whatever they need it for. In my former agency, we had a, a, a different solution, a much older one, and when we got our Bearcat, we put that back in a 1033 program and that probably ended up at some agency that had a need. You mean the county are not getting money back for, for retaining it? 
no, they would not get money. They didn't, the, the only money that it cost to get it was transportation and maintenance costs, so it wouldn't be something that they would sell, no. Okay, thank you. Really quickly also, this is uh, Janice, this chief is, do you foresee something like this given, uh, given the apparent uptick in, uh, in use of firearms that you were describing being needed more than the, f the five times it was actually deployed in the past number of years? Well, again, it's always situational dependent, but considering the amount of firearms crimes we've had, I would think we would need to anticipate more high-risk warrants. Now that we do several high-risk warrants without using the MRAP. We did one this morning. Um, but depending on the situation, depending on uh, the location where we're going and the availability of alternatives, we're constantly looking for alternatives to make these service of these warrants safer. But occasionally there are situations where we just can't avoid it, so we do use it. Uh, but to answer your question, do, would I see us using it more? Um, considering the uptick in the amount of shootings we've had, that would be a possibility. But again, we constantly look for ways to do it as, as safely as possible. So, Chief, um, the primary use would be in serving warrants. It wouldn't be to go to an active um, shooting incident, because such as on the mall, they wouldn't have been able to uh, get to the mall. Well, actually, they are used for active shooter events. Uh, some of you may or may not know, two years ago, there was a big active shooter in El Paso, my former agency, and they certainly had armored vehicles at the scene. And what, honestly, the, uh, the suspect was in custody by the time they got there, but there's so much confusion that people don't know that so they are used for that is one of the primary purposes fortunately those are rare but uh, Iowa City is not immune to active shooters we all remember what happened in the early 90s so it could be used for that as well that officer rescue citizen rescue um, there are situations all over the country where you can point out examples of where they've been used to evacuate citizens where they've been used to rescue down officers so there's a list of things that we typically use it for, and those are those are listed in the in the memo. Thank you. And a question for Jeff. We've heard the the amount, the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which I mean that that's a lot of money. Uh, would that uh, hopefully maybe we it would be a share thing with the county and other entities? But even if it was say a hundred thousand, would that um, where in the budget would that come from? The police budget or some sort of material budget? Um, yeah, we. Um, you know, we'd analyze where the police budget is at any, you know, at the at the time of year we decide to make that purchase. Um, uh, you know, this uh, I think you're all aware we have a, a staffing shortage at the police department right now as we're going through a hiring process. So m I haven't looked at numbers, but my guess is we're substantially, we probably finished the year substantially under budget, and uh, since we'll be short staffed for much of the coming year, um, there'll probably be some budget savings from the um, assumptions we made for salaries when we put that budget together. So that would be our first thing is to, to look at the police budget to see if that can be absorbed there. And if it wasn't uh, able to be accommodated within that budget, we would come to council with uh, suggestions on where else to fund that. Probably, you know, your reserves or you have contingency funds in your budget as well for unplanned expenditures. Hey Jeff, you just you said earlier the the current MRAP had been given to the counties through a program. Am I right? 
Yes, that's correct. The county obtains it. They they own it and and they allow us and other law enforcement agencies in the area to use it. Is there is another program can give our the civilian local win or there is no program such like that? Such program like that. Uh if if I heard you correctly, there's there there would not not a program that I'm aware of to obtain uh like grant funding for a civilian armored vehicle. Chief, are you aware of any? No, the only program I'm aware of is the 1033, and that is military surplus. Right. Okay, thanks. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right, yeah, council, continued discussion. Well, I'm hoping we can just address the fundamental policy question of whether we continue to use the the MRAP. I think when it was um, when it was deployed at the end of May, that was a, you know really disappointing. Given that just last June we had sent a letter to the county asking them to get rid of the MRAP and had the understanding that. You know, presumably that meant that we thought it shouldn't be used by anyone, you know, our, our officers or others. So I, I agree with and understand the analysis of the, the chief and our city manager that we didn't actually take that option off the table. Um, but I think that led to a lot of um, frustration, not just on my part, but certainly by our residents. And I'm very grateful to hear today that there's an acknowledgement that the MRAP rolling down the street, even though it's not mounted with weapons, is intimidating, is scary, is not positive for the community. It is not, um, it, it does harm when it rolls through a neighborhood. And I think we have to acknowledge that four of the five times that it's been deployed by our department has been in the South District, in the same neighborhood. And that certainly has an impact, particularly when it goes to the same houses repeatedly um, on the children in the neighborhood, the children that live in those homes. So whatever kind of vehicle alternative that we may have that might, um, or that the county may acquire that could provide the safety component of this, I think we still need to acknowledge that there's a impact to the community in how these high-risk warrants are served after the fact. Officer safety is one component, but community safety is another component. And um, absolutely, I want our officers to be safe. And if we're only using this in the most dangerous of situations, I understand and appreciate that, that reasoning. But we don't go back into the neighborhoods. We don't have contact with those individuals who are negatively impacted and try and assist them through what they're going through. And I've talked with the city manager about this, and I hope that we keep that in mind, you know, as we continue to look at our plan to restructure the police and what community safety means. Because this, the, the MRAP to me is a problem because it is an instrument of war, and we're rolling it down our neighborhood streets. I, I did uh, just want to follow up. Was... Sorry, go ahead, Mayor Pro. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Mayor. Go, go ahead, uh, City Manager. Okay. Um, the uh, uh, suggestion that, that, that Laura had, she she did address with me after the last use of the MRAP, and, and it's a, a good suggestion. Um, and we have reached out to Mobile Crisis to make sure that they can be a part of that, that team and that response. Um, 
if you look at the press release that the department issued today, even though we did not use the MRAP, it was a high-risk warrant, and thus we had a, uh, a pretty significant number of personnel um, on that scene. Now, that press release did include information on mobile crisis, and again, the chief uh, and captains made uh, mobile crisis aware so that they could um, follow up with anybody um, that um, uh, was having trouble processing, you know, that type of uh, incident in their neighborhood. And I think that, you know, we'll have to continue to grow that partnership, but um, we have taken that advice and, and at least started down that path. So I guess for me, oh, uh, no, go ahead, Mayor Pro Tem, sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Uh, I just want to say I really agree with uh, Council uh, Bergers on, on this. Uh, because, yeah, on, during Black Lives Matter, that one of the things we said we're going to get rid of it. And I think the county also willing to do the same thing. And as by the, you know, the chief himself said, this is really intimidating to the residents when it blows. out. And, uh, like, everything said, I just don't want to repeat what, uh, you know, Council Laura said, but this is, this is really... I think something that we have to get rid of it. And uh, I know it's going to cost us some money to to do the, you know, like the civilian ones, but I think it doesn't matter at this point because if we commit it from the beginning, we have to follow our commit, commit, commitment. So uh, for me, I really want to get rid of it and figure out another safe solution or save uh, another like equipment civilians looking when or whatever it cost uh, we should just figure it out how to budget for it yeah but I'm in support of get rid of it thanks so I would uh, just piggyback on Mayor Pro Tem's statement of uh, in favor of getting rid of it I think uh, there's been lots of reasons shared so far about um, its impacts on, you know, just the, the aftermath of seeing something like this, and even in the midst of this big armored vehicle coming through the community. Um, I, I, but I do want to emphasize that there is still a safety risk that we have to um, consider here. And so, you know, 2019, there's 15 confirmed shots, um, 56 rounds followed, uh, fired. 202057 307 rounds um, 11 individuals were shot and two died 2021 there were 17 confirmed shots fired um, and I know that this is still uh, not updated in the memo but that was 144 rounds and um, fired and then at one incident there were 57 rounds and so when we're looking at, you know, having this discussion, we do have to really keep this at the forefront of our mind. And in 2021, you know, there were six individuals shot and three individuals lost their lives. And so this is something that Iowa City has not dealt with, um, you know, on a consistent um, basis as we're, we're seeing. And just this Saturday, um, where the shots took place, just a couple of hours before, I was sitting on the bench in the Ped Mall um, where the shots were directed. And it was only about, I left maybe about 1130. 
So just two hours before, you know, those shots were not, they don't have eyes, <laughs> but they went in that direction. And so innocent people stand by, can lose their lives. So this is a, this is a real issue that we have to talk about. Um, and, and when, and I understand, you know, the South District, um, it was noted that, you know, the same houses, they've been problematic um, with, um, I guess, suspicion um, to, that I have is suspicious um, um, involvement um, in some inappropriate things. And so people in the South District that I've talked to, uh, and I'm from Chicago, by the way, and so um, I still have family in Chicago, and there are, we know that in Chicago there's lots of shootings going on, and I have uh, family, some are, you know, literally terrified, um, you know, and it weans and wanes, I must say, um, but um, there have been people shot, um, just stand, innocent people standing by, and so when events happen in a neighborhood where there needs to be apprehension, you know, there is this protective piece, this vehicle that can provide that. Um, and whether that's, you know, someone now starting 57 rounds in this community and people are outside, there's a vehicle that people can run to, get in and be protected. Um, I think those are some of the things that we have to think about. The other thing is, um, and, and I want to reiterate, I say get rid of the MRAP. So this is not what I'm talking about. I think we need to um, look at another option. Um, and as Mayor Pro Tem just said, we need to figure out the budget for it. So the Bearcat, um, I get the Linko Bearcat, um, if that's the one that we're going to look at. So um, the other thing I want to mention in, is um, the families that have lost loved ones. That is a real thing that is happening in our community to gunshots. Um, People are losing their lives. And so we want to do what we can to certainly be aware of um, the mental um, anguish this puts on people, you know, in the communities or in whatever communities this vehicle shows up in. Um, the safety part that not only is for our officers, but also for people in the nearby um, area. And what I would suggest that council consider is uh, given direct direction to our city, um, uh, uh, giving direct direction at not using the MRAP, um, as well as giving um, maybe a time frame of acquiring um, another alternative vehicle, which would be the uh, Bearcat. Um, and then I think in the interim between now and then, you know, if there should be a need where this vehicle should be um, needed. And, and I know that there's some, like we're not over the police department specifically on some level um, in the middle of um, calls. But I do wonder if we did want to set up a, some type of a safety net that if that is going to be utilized that um, you have to get a um, majority of council and that, that is something that um, our, our, our um, city attorney would have to talk about. I guess for me, um, it, I understand, I try to understand the, the 
trauma and, and response of people with this rolling down their street. The part of the question I, is, that is in my mind is if we make this move from the MRAP to the Bearcat, is, is the reaction going to be that much different for people in the neighborhoods? I don't know. I, I, I truly and honestly do not know. And so my question becomes, is it worth spending, if assuming that you need on certain occasions to have an armored vehicle for the safety of our police officers and the safety of the public, does it make sense to spend $250,000 to get a different vehicle, which may or may not generate the same trauma and response from the people in the neighborhood. My concern is, I guess, that we go through this and people get the idea that we are getting rid of the MRAP and that means there will be no armored vehicle. And then the Bearcat shows up and the response is, well, wait a minute, you, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. We thought you were saying we aren't using these vehicles anymore. And yeah, maybe this one's three feet shorter, I don't know. But you know, yeah, it's smaller. But to me, it just seems like the same kind of thing as we had before. So why did you go out and spend $250,000 when you haven't really changed it? Maybe on the flip side, they'll say, hey, that's a whole lot better. I don't know. But bef to me, before we go down that path, I think we need to do more outreach in that neighborhood and get and show them pictures show them pictures of what these look like and i would hope from this council's perspective that we are not going to say that our officers cannot use these vehicles to protect themselves and the citizens in, in and our residents in that area when we have a really high risk situation i would certainly hope we aren't saying that but before we make a huge change let's make sure it's really going to get the results that we are thinking it's going to I don't think Iowa City should buy a Bearcat. I don't think that that solves the problem for just the reasons that, that you were saying, Susan. And I think that the the fact that it's owned by the county and managed by the sheriff's department means that it does remain a last resort. It's not sitting in our garage. It's not readily available. It's not, shucks, we paid a lot of money for this. We better use the tool that we have. And I think if we purchase one, will that that there will be some element of that conscious or unconscious in addition to it potentially being problematic in the same ways if we don't address the underlying issue so if i understand uh, you correctly could I, you, right ahead please uh, this is uh, council weiner i have uh, to me we're we're there we're we have two at least two separate issues the one is from my perspective, military vehicles do not belong in a city. I have lived in workplaces where military vehicles uh, roll down the street, uh, and I understand full well exactly how traumatic it is and how, how difficult it is to live with that. They do not, in my view, belong in a city. Uh, and so that's one issue. And for me, that's a separate issue. The other issue is we have... Uh, um, probably in part because of the the gun laws that have been passed at the state legislature, we have, uh, and, and for other reasons that I may not understand, we have an uptick in gun violence. And what I want to hear is sort of an overview and of 
what are the best ways to deal with that? How do we as a community, how does the police department, how does law enforcement in general, what are the tools to deal with that? How can we best approach that? And to me, these are two separate issues. I, that's a good point, uh, Councillor Weiner, because I think it, I keep hearing um, uh, to address the issues and, and talking about the number of times that the MRAP had been used in the South District. Well, that appears to be, to me, where the highest volume of these shots fired and violent incidents have been occurring over the last few years. Um, so I think uh, we do have to look at that and, and uh, do some more community education and, and get to the underlying reason what's going on there in, in that area. The, um, yeah, it's, it's always interesting, you know, how we frame these statistics when it was described as five deployments. You know, I, I think at least my mind was working, you know, it's sort of a distribute, there's no pattern to those five. Uh, but when Laura, you described that it was actually four of the five were in the South District, that's a very different story. And, um, you know, a very concerning story. So yeah, the, the, and I agree with you, Susan, that we, we need to, and it does, especially insofar as there's this concentration of its use, ask residents in the South District, you know, show them what, what the alternative is. I, perhaps there are other alternatives. I'm, I certainly would like to think there's more than one option beyond the, um, the Bearcat, Bearcat. Maybe there isn't, but uh, the, give them an opportunity to, to, um, to see what the alternative is and what their response is. And then as we were just saying, as we saw that there is a concentration of the use of it, where are the shootings occurring? Is there a pattern there um, as well? And uh, that that is, as Janice was saying, is kind of a separate issue, but what, if there is a pattern that may, may be beneficial in the sense that we may be able to come up with strategies. It's, it's both problematic and potentially valuable in that we can uh, come up with a strategy specific to that area that or areas uh, where the shootings are taking place I think if we spent a quarter million dollars on bolstering community violence interruption and trying to actually engage in you know stopping what some of the underlying issues might be that that may be more impactful than you know purchasing the Bearcat. I, I would recommend that we talk to the county and see what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. I heard from one supervisor at one point that they thought that the intent was that they were going to be purchasing one to replace the MRAP. And if that's the case and, you know, the use would be on the same criteria that it is now, so we would understand it is not something that would be, you know, rolled through neighborhoods without extreme um, situations and engage those neighborhoods and work on underlying issues. That'd be kind of my recommendation. I think the engagement is a huge part because I think what we also have to recognize is you have people traumatized by a military vehicle coming through their neighborhood, but the majority of those people want to be safe. They, they don't want those people that are firing all these guns in their neighborhood either. So they want their children to be able to go out and play safely. They want to be able to get out and go to their car and go to work in the morning or whatever, or not have shots come through their house in the middle of the night and kill them or one of their children. 
So I think you have the majority of those people in the South Side, those South Side residents who very much want the police to be successful in investigating and hopefully prosecuting individuals that are causing these issues. And so we need to be talking to them and we need to be explaining why we are doing what we are doing and how, yes, it's keeping our officers safe, but it's also keeping residents in the area of those high risk warrants too. I think we've seen too many cases uh, across this country with whether they are always no knock or that type of uh, serving of a warrant where you just go bashing into the house and what somebody's immediate reaction if they happen to have a gun and they don't know who's coming through the door lots of times is they start firing as well and so to avoid those things you know having that armored vehicle it would seem to me does in certain cases have a place and so talking to educating explaining to those residents why we use it when we use it showing the pictures i think that engagement is really important I do hear a, um, maybe, go right ahead, please. No, go, go ahead, Mayor. Uh, what I was going to say is that I do kind of hear a consensus um, on reach, having staff reach out to, or the chief reach out to the county and, you know, directly learn about their intent to purchase um, another vehicle. Um, so we'll council in agreement with that? Oh, yeah, I think we should know what they're doing. It That only okay. makes sense. Um, and then it does sound like, you know, we can probably talk about some opportunities for engagement, um, probably in a, in a near future, or if we want to go ahead and just kind of, you know, ask staff to give us some thoughts on mm -hmm. Well, I guess my question is, because I'm hearing different things from, from counselors, we'll need some direction from the majority. Um, we can work with the county, and if, if, if they're going to get a replacement vehicle, you can count on probably um, about a year from the time you order it till it's delivered for a vehicle like this. So there's going to be a significant period of time um, in which we're still dealing with gun violence where these types of high-risk situations are likely to come up. And the direction we'll need from you all is is the MRAP in our toolbox or not while this other vehicle may be on order? If it's not, you just have to understand that there are um, uh, investigations and warrants that or there are warrants we won't serve and investigations that won't proceed as quickly um, or as successfully as, as they otherwise probably would have because we're not going to serve those warrants and, and have our officers there if we don't think it's safe. Um, so if, if that's okay, then we can do, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a fair policy decision you can make, um, but that affects the type of engagement that we do. Um, uh, if we still have the, the MRAP as a tool, that's going to that's gonna change some of the discussion around the, the engagement. So that's kind of most importantly what we need. I understand the desire to replace the vehicle, and I think we can absolutely work towards that in one way, shape, or form. But... Uh, it's this interim period that I think you all need to be very clear to us about. I just want to ask you, early I seen the police chief mentioned that uh, during 14 years has been used seven times or something like this? S seven times in, in the seven years that it's been available, yes. Yes, then uh, why we're assuming now we're going to use it more? 
Because the the uh, number of incidents involving weapons is increasing, and weapons is a uh, a very high uh, weighted factor when it comes to making deployment decisions. So the increase in gun crimes will lead to increase in uh, in warrants uh, involving those gun crimes. I don't know, but I, I still believe that, uh, you know, it shouldn't be a one of our tools to use. And uh, we have to figure out something else as soon as possible. I, I do wonder if council, um, I did make a, you know, a suggestion as far as like supermajority um, and on its use. I don't know if people would. Yeah, I know some of the some of the stuff happened really quickly. Yeah, I think the challenge, mayors, um, we, we can't announce where we're going to be doing a, a search warrant at, and and by getting council approval, we would essentially be doing that. We would be noticing the no, public on where our warrants were being executed, and that's that's not that's not going to sure that's not going to work. I guess one one thought I'm having is uh, as we we're talking about engaging the South District on the alternative versus the MRAP, uh, engaging the community on this part of the discussion. What do we do in this interim period? You know, do we, um, how, does, how does the South District feel about the deployment of MRAP in this interim period? Um, that seems to me the area of most concern is is there. I don't know that, it, I mean, the use of the MRAP elsewhere, I'm not hearing that things are, uh, that there's this pushback or concern about its use, but. Um, well, it hasn't been there, that's why. I mean, right. But I, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no pushback because it hasn't been there. Only once uh, has it been anywhere else. Someone brought up coordinating with the county, and I think that's going to be also a very important part of this because, I mean, this whole discussion would be null and void if, if they eliminate the NRAP, uh, give it back to, to the government, then it's no longer there. And then so what do we want to do as a group and as a city? Yeah, I think the question would be whether they did that before they got a replacement. Yeah, but I think in the right. meantime, we have right. to give staff direction. Right. I don't like the use of it, but given the safety that it can provide for our officers and the public, I am supportive of allowing its use until we make further determinations on a replacement vehicle or other safe strategies. I don't think it should be in the toolbox. And I think we can find alternatives and I would expect that those alternatives would not be more um, violent in terms of moving to uh, dynamic entry rather than, you know, but I, I appreciate what our city manager said that that may be that there's some period of time in which we're taking different approaches and not pursuing things as in in the way that we're using the MRAP now. And the problem we know if there is another community they don't have that kind of tools and what they do normally. Uh, the question was communities that don't have this tool available what what would they do? Yes. I came up in the police department when we didn't have these tools, and it was a lot more dangerous doing my job, period. We took a lot more risks. Um, and honestly, I'm frankly going to be hard-pressed to ask our SRT guys to do their job without this equipment. 
and, I'm, and I wouldn't expect them to want to do their job without this equipment. I can't stress to you enough how infrequently we use it and how seriously I take this. But I've been to a place where 23 people have been murdered at one time, and I know what happens when the public is panicked and they don't know what's going on. And when one of those big trucks rolls in, they're not scared of the truck anymore because they're scared of the people who've been running around shooting people. So this is a real threat. This is not just, you know, us driving this thing around. I, I commit to you that we're not driving this thing around to upset people. And we need to do a better job of getting with the public. I intend in the South District's meetings to talk about that. I've got pictures of my kid in the back of our Bearcat when he was three years old. We need to do things like that. We need to let them know that it's a tool and this is what we use it for. But I appreciate, I do appreciate the impact it has. And I want you to know I appreciate that. But thinking that there could be an officer laying somewhere that we can't get to, because I've seen that happen, that we can't get to because we don't have the equipment I can't imagine that we would want to make that decision. I mean, these are the most extreme circumstances. I can give you the statistics on how many times we've done high-risk warrants, SRT warrants. We use the MRAP on less than a quarter of the time we have high-risk warrants. So we're looking for other al alternatives. And again, I, I just can't stress that enough. That's my commitment to you guys. It's my commitment to the community. I don't want to see that thing driving around. I don't. But if we have to use it, I'd rather see that thing driving around than go to another officer's funeral or go to a citizen's funeral that we weren't able to rescue. And I've been to six line of duty death funerals in my career and I don't want to go to any more. Okay? So again, I'm sorry I'm a little passionate about this, but it means something to me because I've sat in the back of one of those things when people were shooting. And it's real. Okay? And Seeing what I've seen, I watched that video just like you guys did from Saturday night, and that scares the crap out of me. I was down there, too, with my wife and kids. Not at 1 in the morning, but I was down there, and that's scary. And we need to be able to feel like we have the tools to address that. Most of the time, we can do it without, without that tool, but sometimes we can't. And I would hate to think that we gave up an opportunity to arrest one of these people because we didn't have the tools. So, so, Chief, am I, am I hearing that you've had conversations in the South District where you said essentially what you just said? Absolutely. And how, what was their response? Well, they, they expressed their concerns over it, which I completely get. But I expressed my concern. It, it was two days after there was a murder down there, and it was directly related to a murder investigation. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Believe me, I get it, but I also know that the, the community members are traumatized by the violence that's going on, and we need to address that. And that's, that's one tool that we avoid using, but sometimes we have to use. In the interest of time, because we are um, needing to conclude our time here, I wanted to maybe just uh, kind of give some direction to staff um, before we end this topic. So it does sound like at least there's a new... Um, a, a majority of support for um, communication with the county on just having conversations about an alternative vehicle, the Bearcat. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yes, so I hear that. Yes. And then as far as the interim use, um, does I, I know I've heard, like Jeff has said, there's been a few things. Uh, we just heard Councilor um, Mims say, you know, in the interim, we need something, um, I, I guess. And then I heard Councillor um, Burgess, um, <laughs> <Counselor> Burgess. <laughs> Burgess say, um, 
maybe more parameters around its use or not use, I'm not sure exactly what I heard, but maybe I'll put it out there. Um, who would be, at least for the interim, given what the chief just said is very extra cautionary usage, but maybe we, it does sound like we need to have more conversation. Um, and we can probably bring this back on our next agenda or when it seems appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, just in the interim, but until we have another conversation, would be okay in the most extreme situations that they deem appropriate would use the M MRAP. Wanted to know if um, what people's thoughts are. Or I, yeah. I, I, I would need to know so we can give them some direction. So are people supportive of that? Well, for me, I really think that uh, we should not use it a period and uh it's not supposed to be in our tool kit okay um councilor weiner do you have thoughts or it's hard to put you on the spot um i agree with mayor pro tem yeah yeah it, so for me what i do know is that um <laughs> if if there is going to be and i don't care what neighborhood you're in a shooting an active shooting and there are people going down we don't have anything else in the toolkit I have to believe that our um, well the chief and, and I totally want to get rid of it but I also believe that we need something different so between now and our next meeting I, I think it would not be um, in the best interest of all of the residents in our community especially um, individuals that are um, involved with you know some of this violence happening where there's 57 rounds on one on one incident so I, I would say until our next meeting um, that would be in the toolkit but Meyer uh, the city manager did not say that the city manager said between now and we purchase a civilian vehicle we do the same thing it would take months right and I'm just we want to still use that yeah, no, and I'm only referring to our next conversation on this, not for the 12 months, just for the next conversation. I still stay, no? Okay. Okay, great. I, I just, I mean, I said yes, I'll just say one other thing. I, these, these are hard conversations, and these are affecting people deeply. But I would rather have somebody affected deeply by an MRAP going down their street than by them or one of their children being killed by a stray bullet coming through their house. And I'm just gonna go around and get some, what are your thoughts? I agree with Susan, I think, and uh, I appreciate what uh, Council Burgess has said, and especially in regards to last summer's incident. That was sort of a totally different thing where we all together said maybe that wasn't the appropriate use for that vehicle at that time, and so we sort of jumped on the bandwagon to say let's we shouldn't use it anymore. But now in those kinds of things, as, as Councillor Mims has discussed, you know, if there's active shooting going on or there's a dangerous uh, situation where it, it's appropriate, and I, I would trust uh, the chief and, and his staff in, in their decision on that. They're not just going to willy-nilly every day go out and use this vehicle um, so that that's my opinion yes for temporarily that Great. I agree thank you um, <clears throat> yeah I'm I'm very sympathetic to the chief's uh, argument um, 
I do believe there has to be a very high level of community engagement in this interim period. If, if, if it is going to be remain in the toolbox for this interim period, uh, that you know the, the policy and the use is very clearly explained you know that this to to the um, community that so so that they understand the, the, the context in which it's being deployed uh, and it's it's being used with high high level of discretion uh, reluctantly I think I would almost want to say but at this point it's the only thing we have so I, I just to say that we just categorically cannot use it, um, I, I, I don't think we can be categorical uh, given the situation we're in. Councilor Burgess? Um, not in the toolbox. I'm sorry, say that again. I said not in the toolbox. Okay, all right. So um, it will remain in the toolbox until we have our next conversation. We have a majority of four. And then we will, because this is such a highly sensitive item, I think that we should have this at our next work session if to, um, we should try to figure it out. Is there anything uh, that you want staff to prepare for your next discussion? I know you're going to reach out to the, uh, the county and just give us an update. Um, and, and I think it would be fair to say what other options are in the toolbox um, to bring to council. Okay. okay. Thanks. With that, um, any other conversation we will hold until after the meeting. Uh, we'll just come back to work session just to make sure if there's anything that people want to, well, actually we'll just do the council updates the then formal. at the end of the uh, formal meeting. If nothing else, we'll be adjourned until 6 p.m. <laughs>